their seat, getting spiritually prepared. Just a reminder, as I reminded you on Tuesday night, uh, there's uh, new cards, new information for uh, Jim Myers Ministries, new mailing address, all that, and those are on these cards that are uh, around the church. A couple of announcements, just to remind everybody, we have the Israel Conference coming up. This morning I went down to KHCB and recorded two spots that will air on KHCB next week and the following week. I think that's correct. Yeah, next week and the following week uh, leading up to the conference. So we'll see how many that brings in. It usually brings in quite a number of registrations for the Chafer Conference. So um, we'll see. And uh, that's good. Okay, so we have that. We still need some volunteers. I don't know that anything's changed there to help with setup and serving, putting out just some snacks. Primarily that's going to be Saturday morning and and on Sunday night. And then um, we have sign-up sheets for that out in the uh, fellowship hall. Then, little praise item. Uh, As of yesterday... The Lord has provided completely a restitution of finances for Jim Myers Ministries. So that has been just remarkable because it took about three or four weeks for all of that, and it was a substantial amount of money. And uh, so the Lord provided, and um, we can be very thankful for that, that the Lord has those resources and also that uh, things look good for the enrollment for the schools, I've, been, I've mentioned that in prayer a couple of times, but he has 14. There may be two more. If there are 16, I think I will be standing on the desk to teach because the classroom really won't hold more than that comfortably. And uh, it's, it's great. So I don't think there's been that many since the, uh, I think we had 12 or 13 right at the first couple of years. So this is a rec- record enrollment, so we can be very thankful for the way God is uh, blessing that uh, that ministry. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint." Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus." Thou thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. We'll bow our heads together and have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we are in right relationship with the Lord, to make sure we are not walking according to the sin nature, which means to live on the in on the basis of the sin nature but walking by God the Holy Spirit. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Our Father, again, we are just so very grateful, and we praise your name for the way you have provided for uh, Jim Myers Ministries and for the way you have so quickly restored uh, the finances. Father, we pray that as uh, the weeks go forward that they can also restore all of these important uh, documents. And, Father, they are uh, in many cases almost, uh, in some cases, almost irreplaceable. But due to the fact we have computers, some of it is, will be able to be reconstructed. But we pray that they'll be able to pull of all that information together and that they will be uh, back in as good a shape, if not better shape, than they were before. Your, your blessings are just abundant, and we're thankful for that. Father, we continue to thank you for your abundant grace in our lives, that you have given us so much and that we are provided with so much, and yet we, we don't always probe uh, the depths of what it is that you've provided for us. And as we study tonight, we are all individual priests to you. We are royal priests. And, Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand that, that this isn't just a, well, that's just another fact, but it is a reality. It transforms how we as individuals relate to you. No one prior to the church age ever had the kind of privileges, the kind of uh, power because of the Holy Spirit that we have as believers. And, Father, we pray that we might come to understand this as we study this important doctrine tonight. In Christ's name, Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're finishing up on this first section in 1 Peter 2. In 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, I pretty much went through most of the exegetical material on 1 Peter chapter 2 last week, emphasizing the fact that this, this quote, which comes out of Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, is being applied by Peter under the Holy Spirit to not only the Jewish background believers that are his primary audience, but it also has application at a broader level to all believers. Because what is said here in these chapters and in relation to uh, to these believers is also true of other statements made in Scripture that apply to all believers, whether they come from a Jewish background or a uh, um, Gentile background. Now, as we were, as I was wrapping up last time, as I was wrapping up last time, we went through these statements that. We're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and his own special people. In Exodus 19.6, that specifically was directed to Israel. And it's applied here to the church in a broader sense. It's not replacement theology. This is part of the problem that the early church got into. The earliest church father to talk about the church as spiritual Israel was a church father by the name of Justin Martyr, and this was about 160, about 160 A.D. And by that time, you started having sort of the intrusion of allegorical or spiritualized interpretation. Just the bidding. It's not full bore yet, but that influence is there from the culture. This has always been the problem with, with Christianity, is we've let the culture 
the world, as the Bible calls it, intrude itself into our thinking. We don't uh, completely uh, change the way we think and let it be transformed uh, profoundly by the Word of God. So we bring our pagan worldview with us into the text, and that would be the spiritualization, because that came out of the influence of Neoplatonism and Platonism, uh, in the Greek world at that particular time, that the literal, the physical, wasn't as important as that which was the ideal or the spiritual behind it. So in terms of interpretation, you're, you you sort of minimize the literal historical meaning of the words, and you're looking for that that hidden or that spiritual meaning that is behind the words. Now, this plays itself out in another aspect as we're looking at this passage because of a failure to understand this distinction between Israel and the church because of the influence that's coming into the early church by 160 of the of this spiritualized or allegorized interpretation where Israel in the Old Testament is talking about the church in the Old Testament, that the believers are the church of the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, the church in the New Testament is referred to as spiritual Israel. Well, what happens when you blur this distinction and don't understand that, that the sacrificial system, the Levitical priesthood, and all of that came to an abrupt halt once our high priest... Uh, is sacrificed on the cross. Once we have that sacrifice and he ascends to heaven and he becomes our high priest, once that takes place, then the old ritual sacrificial system of the Mosaic law is completely ended and done away with. And so you don't have this, the, the, the priesthood ends. But what happens when you don't see that distinction is you carry those terms over and you've heard it some of you come out of certain church backgrounds. Some of you come out of Roman Catholic backgrounds. Some of you come out of Baptist, Pietistic backgrounds, and they'll have the altar call at the end of the uh, at the end of the message. And if you, I don't know, when I was growing up, every now and then would visit a Baptist church, and they call it an altar call. Got to come to the altar and lay it all on the altar. I'm going, where's the altar? An altar is where you have a sacrifice. Where's the altar? Well, they get that terminology because they've spiritualized the the Old Testament. And in its worst form in terms of the history of Christianity was in Roman Catholicism. And the the uh, leadership in the church became known as priests. They just carried that terminology over. And then, of course, they looked at the... Um, at the at the communion, which became the mass, but they looked on that as a sacrifice, and Jesus under transubstantiation, which is the doctrine of of how the Roman Catholic Church looks at the uh, the bread and looks at the cup, that they are l- turned literally into the substance. Uh, and you can't even understand that word if you don't have a background in Aristotelian philosophy. They're turned into the substance of the body and the blood of Christ. And so this this enters into um, enters into early Christianity, and and really between 160 and about 400, that gradually develops. It's not rapid, because you don't have Jerome writing this on Twitter or Facebook so that it spreads quickly. It takes 
years for these ideas to start to filter around and to be spread, but it slowly develops so that you begin to get more of a full-blown Roman Catholic theology by the period between uh, Augustine in 400 and Gregory the Great in 600. So that's how how it develops. And when you look at this passage here, uh, it really is important because from the dominance of Roman Catholic theology with this distinct priesthood and this, this marked distinction between the clergy, the priesthood, and the laity, where they have certain things that the other Christians don't have, and they have an access to God that the everyday Christian doesn't have, that becomes so embedded in Roman Catholic theology during the period of the Middle Ages that it creates this superstition and it creates an ignorance because uh, along with that, only the priests can understand uh, the Scripture, only the priests can interpret the Scripture, and then by the time Jerome in the second century is translated, uh, I mean in the third century is translated the uh, Old and New Testaments into Latin, and as the Roman Empire collapses, and the Latin is lost as the lingua franca of Western Europe, then people can no longer read and understand the Bible. And you go for a period of almost a thousand years where the Bible is kept away from the people. They can't read it. They can't understand it. Masses are in Latin. Nobody understands it. And this priestcraft develops. But all of that goes back to the failure to interpret the Scripture on a historical, grammatical uh, exegetical basis. So and when and when you understand these principles that we're going to cover tonight related to the priesthood of the believer, that was one of those groundbreaking doctrines that came out of the Protestant Reformation because all of a sudden they're being taught that you can have the Bible in your own language. They could understand it because the sermons were all in the uh, Koine or the common language of the people. They were in German, they were in English, they were in, in French and Italian, and people could understand it. But the emphasis was that every believer had access, direct access to God. You didn't have to go through a priest. You, your, your prayers didn't have to go through some secondary or tertiary intercessor. Every believer could have access. Now, we've lost that. We don't come out of that kind of a background, so we've lost the power of that, that every one of us has direct access to God. And that was groundbreaking. That was revolutionary in, in the early 1500s. So we're looking at this doctrine tonight, wrapping up this verse 10 verses of, of chapter 2, and I just want to touch on this last verse before we go into the doctrine of the priesthood. In verse 10, coming out of verse 9, let me read them together. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that, see the purpose now is applied to church-age believers. You may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that's a responsibility of every believer as a priest is to proclaim the gospel, is to explain the gospel to people, to talk to people, to have the word of God so saturated in your soul 
and you've memorized so much scripture that whatever is happening around you, whatever people say, whatever the conversations are, you have the skill to turn it to the word of God and to put the word of God's light on that circumstance and that situation. I mentioned this the uh, Tuesday night that I just finished reading uh, Elwood McQuaid's uh, biography of Zvi, that's spelled Z as in zebra, V as in Victor, I as in indigo. I've had several people ask that. Apparently it doesn't come across. My articulation isn't as precise as it should be. So it's hard to understand. That's not an English word. It's a Hebrew word. But uh, V. Kalisher wrote a column for many years, and I was always amazed when I would read those of how he would talk to Hasidic Jews, secular Jews, um, Orthodox Jews on the street, and he would just be able to pull up a proverb or another verse from the Old Testament to directly apply it to whatever the question was or the situation. And if you haven't done that, then you sit there and you just say, Two hours later, you say, you know, I really wish I'd learned that a little bit better. It, it, it's, it, it doesn't help if you're, you, you have a tool bag and your tools are left at home. And you say, oh, you know, that, I've got that in my notes somewhere. It's got to be in your head, got to be in our soul. We have to understand that. Now, verse 10 builds out of that and says that, uh, the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light refers ultimately to God the Father and says, and then describing the you of that verse, it says, who, you, who. So he's talking to this audience and he's taking an Old Testament passage and he's applying it to them, but it has a secondary application and implication for a broader audience. He's clearly talking to Jewish background believers, but it's not restricted to them. There's sort of a, a, a an expanded application here. In, um, back in about 2007, we had uh, Bob Thomas, Dr. Robert Thomas from Master Seminary talk about uh, interpretation, and he breaks things down a little differently than the way Arnold Fruchtenbaum does in terms of your categories of how the Old Testament's used in the New Testament. And he has one category that refers to um, what he calls inspired census plenure. Now, that's a technical Latin term that's used that there is a fuller sense to a passage in the Old Testament, but because the writers of the New Testament are writing under the inspiration of Scripture, they can take Old Testament passages and apply them in a broader or fuller way. That's the idea of plenure. They have a broader sense, a fuller sense, and that's what he's doing in this particular passage. The interpretive principle here is that New Testament writers, under the inspiration of the Old Testament, take Old Testament passages and apply them to the church. They're not saying this is what that passage meant in the Old Testament. That had a distinct meaning in the Old Testament. But now they're applying it in a broader sense. Now the reason I say that is because these verses uh, are, are the phrases that are here in verse 10. Not a people, and now the people uh, come out of a significant context in the Old Testament book Hosea. 
Hosea is one of those strange books in the Old Testament. Hosea is a prophet, and God called him and said, you need to marry a prostitute. And normally that would be prohibited. But he marries her, and she has first she has a daughter named Lo-Ruhama. Lo is the Hebrew word for no. When we took first-year Hebrew, we learned that Lo was no, and who is he, and he is she. That's a quick way to just remember some of the, some of the short words and little words. So Lo-Ruhama, Ruhama is from the word for mercy. And so the first child's called Lo Ruhama or No Mercy because God is announcing judgment on Israel, and this is a sign of that coming judgment. And then God said in verse 9 that she would give birth to a son, and he would be called Lo Ami. Ami, Am, is the Hebrew word for people. Uh, The I on the ending is a first-person singular so that would be my people, and the low is what? Low is no. Not my people. And the explanation is because there would be no mercy. God was going to judge them. They would not be my people, and I will not be your God. In other words, God and God is going to use this relationship with, with uh, Hosea to indicate a divorce because of the apostasy of the people. Now, that is the image that's used in relation to the discipline taking the people out of the land because they have been unfaithful going after all of these other gods. And it goes on to say, yet even though they would not be my people, this wasn't an absolute, he's still going to fulfill the promises, the eternal promises of the Abrahamic covenant. This isn't a breach of the Abrahamic covenant. It's not a foundation for replacement theology, although that's where they they will go. In verse 10, he says, Yet the number of the children of Israel should be as the sand of the sea. That was the promise to Abraham. His descendants would be as the stars of the heaven, the sand of the sea. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. There will be a change. You will be brought back into this glorious relationship with God. Then if you read through Hosea chapter 2, when you come to the end of that chapter, which mostly focuses on what takes place during uh, uh, this judgment period, at the end, he sa- God says in verse 23, Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Remember, lo Ruhama, no mercy. I'll have mercy on Israel uh, who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were lo Ami, not my people, you are my people. Um, And they shall say, you are my God. That is when Israel turns to God at the end of the period of the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week. And so this language is then used and applied by Peter in terms of what is happening in the church age at those who were not my people. Because once the Jews become not my people, they're lumped in with the Gentiles. So now they will become my people. So he applies this, verse 10, using that same language. 
Uh, you who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but have now obtained mercy. See, that language comes right out of Hosea chapter 2, showing that that, uh, that wouldn't have any meaning if he was just writing to Gentiles. But writing to Jewish background believers, it would resonate with them. It would mean something to them. Okay, that wraps up where we've gone in the first 10 verses. Now let's look at the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. Now to understand the priesthood of the believer, I think we first of all have to understand what any kind of priesthood is. What is a priest? What does a priest do? Well, as far as a general definition goes, a priest is a religious leader who represents people to God. That's the role of the priest. He's, to, he's an intercessor, ultimately. He's bringing people to God in contrast to the prophet who represents God to the people. Now, in Israel, that priesthood had a little bit more of a distinct function. But priests, uh, priests still existed before you had the Levitical priests of the Mosaic Law. And uh, the, the function still was offering sacrifices and interceding for the people. So that's the core idea of a priest. So when it comes to uh, our priesthood, that means that we are representing ourselves before God. We are coming before God in terms of an intercessory ministry that would involve praying, that would involve the study of the Word, all of those things, but it's grounded in our high priest. And the basic thing we need to remember if we're thinking theologically about how do we defend the fact that we have a, a, universal, high, a universal priesthood for the believer is because at the instant that we are saved, we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and we are placed into Christ. We are in Christ. We are in him. And so we have, if he is a high priest, then we have a priesthood because we are in him. That is what makes a difference. And so our priesthood in the church age is a distinctly spiritually based priesthood. And what we'll see is in the Old Testament, it didn't have anything to do with your spiritual condition. It was all related to genealogy and to physical uh, characteristics. But in the New Testament, it's all related to uh, being regenerate and being identified with Christ. Now, the reason, well, we'll get into that when we get there. That's our general definition. A priest is a religious leader who represents pe uh, people to God. Now, in terms of a little addition to that, as I was saying in the introduction, due to the failure of the early church to distinguish between Israel and the church, uh, the titles of Israel pre Israel's priesthood, their spiritual leaders, got transferred to the church. Okay, so pastors became known as priests, and that is was just led to a complete destruction of biblical ecclesiology, the role and the purpose for the local church. Now, as I said, priests didn't begin with the Levites. You had priestly functions, and you had people who functioned as priests in Genesis. So we'll look at a little background. Initially, from the time of Adam's fall, because the first priestly act really is uh, when he is coming as an intercessor and they begin to offer sacrifices. So that was under uh, the patriarchy. Now remember in terms of our Old Testament, you have a period of time 
uh, in the Old Testament between the, the fall and the flood that is a an age known as the age of the Gentiles. You don't have a distinction made yet with the with the Jews. It's the age of the Gentiles. And it's comprised of, of three dispensations. You have the dispensations of what was called innocence, which even though some people misunderstand it, that is a very good word because it's a legal word. And that's the emphasis in Scripture is our relationship to God is based on a legal function. And it's not just that we're not guilty. We are declared innocent. Man was declared innocent because he had not sinned yet. And it's not innocence in the sense of naivete. It's innocent in the sense of being not guilty. And so later on, this this really uh, is important because that ties into the whole idea of justification, imputation of sin, things of that nature. So in the uh, early age of the Gentiles, you have uh, the family priest. The patriarch is the family priest. And so this is operational through all of the families, and you see it functioning at different times in the Old, Te- Old Testament and in this period. For example, when Noah comes off the ark, we're told that the first thing he did was to build an ar- altar to the Lord, and he took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Remember, of the clean animals, he took seven on the on the ark, T- three pairs, that's so they can propagate the species quickly, and one extra one. wonder why he took that extra one so that that would be available for a sacrifice. So immediately coming off the ark, he builds an altar and offers sacrifices to the Lord. Then the next time we see this operational is in Genesis chapter 12, after Abraham has been uh, called by God to go to Ur of the Chaldees, I mean, to leave Ur of the Chaldees and to go to the land he promised. And, of course, he goes to Haran for a while in northern Syria. And before he finally heads down from the north and heads down into the promised land. And the first place he stops is a place called Shechem or Shechem in English. And he comes to a place called Shechem, which obviously has a some sort of um, a habitation at that point, very small village. And he comes there, and we're told as far as the terebinth tree of Morah, and Canaanites were in the land. So there are Canaanites who are living there, and he's going to go to this grove of oak trees, this particular area, and he is going to build an altar uh, to the Lord. Uh, The Lord appeared to him there and said, um, reiterate the promise of the land. To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to them. So he builds an altar to the Lord. And we're told that he, uh, he proclaims, as he does this, he proclaims the name of the Lord. That means he is proclaiming the gospel. Uh, verse 8, and this last year when uh, we went over there and in previous times we've gone through this area, you can see it. It's uh, about a day's walk south of Shechem. And as you go down that north-south highway that runs through the backbone of Samaria uh, in, in the what is called the West Bank, at 
but it goes right between Ai on the east and Bethel on the on the west. And if you know where to look, just to the west of that highway, there is the remains of a of a fourth century church that Jerome t- tells us was built on the traditional site that's pretty well attested where Abraham had built this altar. Later, uh, this was where uh, uh, Jacob. Uh, laid down and used a rock for a pillow and had his his vision and God reconfirmed the covenant there. So this is that spot. And verse 8 was said, he moved from there to the mountain east of uh, Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and I left off the rest of it and he, procl- and he uh, proclaimed the name of the Lord. Called upon the name of the Lord is the way it's usually translated, but it meant that this is where he is uh, he is basically going to preach the gospel at that point. So that's the patriarchal priesthood. Then also in Genesis, just a couple of chapters later, we're introduced to another priesthood, one that is shrouded in a little bit of mystery because we're just told about it in these three verses. And this takes place after an army of of uh, terrorists, you might say, after these armies of kings from the east under Heterleomer and some others come and invade uh, into the promised land and they go to the beautiful area around the Dead Sea, which isn't so beautiful today, and they dis- they they uh, capture a lot of booty and they kidnap a lot of people and then they head back north and they head all the way up towards the area into Syria again and then Abraham goes with his men and he he uh, defeats them uh, takes back the captives and all the booty and he returns to a town called Salem which is Jerusalem that's the original name uh, it's from the root Shalom meaning peace he comes to Salem and when he comes to Salem he is going to give of the plunder that he has recovered, he's going to give 10% to the priest king of Salem. We're told about this in Genesis 14, 18 to 20. Now, the ruler of Salem is a Gentile, and Jewish tradition in the, um, in the older Jewish writings believed that this was Shem, the son of Noah. And if you work out the chronology, it certainly works. Shem would have been uh, still been alive at this time. In fact, Shem wouldn't probably doesn't die until Abraham is about 160 years old. So we're told that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. So this is prefigures, it's foreshadows uh, communion. So it's a meal of fellowship. And he, we're told he was the priest of the God Most High. Now, the term uh, Melchizedek is the term. Melchi, Melch, Melech is the word for king. Zedek is righteousness. So this is a title. I don't think it's a name. His name is Melchizedek. And there are others in the Bible who have this title. For example, one of the Canaanite kings in Joshua 10.1 is called Adonai Zedek, the Lord of Righteousness. So this would be a title. And he is called here or identified as the priest of the God Most High, El Elyon. And he blesses Abraham and says, Blessed be Avram, the God of God Most High, El Elyon, 
possessor of heaven and earth. Now, one of the interesting things here is that word for possessor is the word kana. And kana is usually a word that indicates uh, some sort of economic purchase or, or buying something. When you buy something, you become the owner of it. So it came to mean the owner of something. But what, what's interesting is a lot of pre-modern cultures, if you ask someone, if you saw, for example, someone who had, um, had made a paddle for a boat, uh, who owns it? It's the person who made it. If you saw somebody who had made a carriage, who owns it? It's the person who made it. So this idea of ownership and possession uh, is very closely related, and uh, and the idea of of the one who created it or the one who made it. And in fact, in a couple of the Hebrew dictionaries, identifies a, another meaning of this word as create. And so I think that fits the context better as we understand God presented in Genesis that he is not the possessor or simply the owner of heaven and earth. He owns it because he made it. And that fits with the title. He's God Most High, El Elyon. He is the, he is the highest uh, authority in all of the universe. And he is owns, he owns, and he controls, and he rules over over the heavens and the earth. And he blesses El Elyon in verse 20, who's delivered your enemies into your hand, and he that is Avram gave him a tithe of all. So here we see this function of this Gentile priest, and that's distinct. Now, priest isn't mentioned again in Genesis at all. This is the last time we see any indication of a priest other than the function of the patriarchs in terms of building altars and offering sacrifices. The third point here is that the first mention of priests in Israel is a passage we looked at last time, Exodus 19.6. It's the passage that's quoted in our First uh, Peter 2.9 passage. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's the first time you hear this. So, so as a kingdom, they are... Uh, they're distinguished from all other kingdoms and all other nations on the earth in that they're going to have a priestly function in relationship to them. And we see that this is is fulfilled when we look at the eschatology in Isaiah 2, 2 and 3. Also, I have at the bottom of the second reference, Micah 4, 1 through 3, and Zechariah 8, 20 to 23, I'll talk about this, that in the kingdom, when the kingdom comes, see, if you don't have a view of a literal future Jewish kingdom in, in centered in Jerusalem, then you can't figure this stuff out. Uh, if you have an allegorical view, then you, you're just thinking this somehow relates to heaven or whatever. So in verse 2 we read, It shall come to pass in the latter days, that's the latter days of Israel, that the mountain of the Lord's house, that is the millennial temple that's described in Ezekiel 40 and following, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. There will be a, a topographical change probably due to this earthquake that takes place uh, at the end of the tribulation period that changes and probably elevates a, a, a huge mountain in Jerusalem that will become the uh, place where the millennial temple is built. It's not the current 
Temple Mount because it's too small to fit the dimensions of the uh, Ezekiel 40 to 48 uh, description of the temple. But it will be built on the top of the mountains and all the nations shall flow to it. Israel becomes a priest nation. All the Gentiles, that's the Hebrew word there, the goyim, all the Gentiles will flow to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the of the Lord from Jerusalem." This is when they function as a priest nation. Now, does that mean that they don't have a priestly tribe functioning within the nation? Of course not. They still have within the nation the function of uh, the the, uh, Levitical descendants of Zadok. Uh, Zadok was the uh, descendant of Aaron, who after the judgment on the house of Eli, it is through... uh, uh, and, and after Abiathar, uh, the high priest at the time of David, uh, aligns himself to um, uh, Absalom, then you have this this shift. Zadok is the priest who stays loyal to David. And so it's the descendants of Zadok who are going to be the priestly, uh, the, the family of the high priest and serve in the temple of the Lord in the uh, millennial temple. So you you have a priestly nation to the rest of the world, and then you have a priest tribe in the middle. Fourth point in terms of Old Testament priesthood is that priests in Israel were limited to the tribe of Levi and the descendants of Aaron. So you this is it, it gets a little confusing because you read about the priests and the Levites. Well, priests are, pre- are the descendants of Aaron, but not all, de- and, and there was just one line from Aaron from which the high priest would come, but the other priests seemed to have been descendants of, of Aaron, and then you had uh, the, other, uh, the others in that tribe, the Levites, who would also serve in the temple doing multiple, multiple functions. Uh, the priests came down through a line from Aaron through Eleazar, and then you had others that functioned in the in the temple, a tabernacle in the temple. And if you think about some of the things that we've studied in the past, when you when you're looking, especially at the temple, Solomon's dedication of the temple, when he he sacrifices 900 bulls, you have to have a huge logistical framework to do that. You have to have a lot of people working, and uh, you have to have people who are. Uh, Levites, because only Levites can work in the temple, so they have to be your building engineers, your construction workers. They have to be the ones who make all the instruments. They have to be blacksmiths. They have to make the knives, keep the knives sharp. They have to be seamstresses because they have to make all of the garments. Uh, Everything has to be done by Levites, so you have a huge division of labor. And those Levites who lived in Jerusalem could serve there. But, of course, if you were a Levite and you lived up in the north or way down in the south near near Beersheba, you couldn't do that. So you were sort of a non-functioning Levite. But if you moved to Jerusalem, then you could have a part uh, a part in the, in the worship. So it focuses on the uh, tribe of Levi and the descendants of Aaron. Fifth point here is that uh, the responsibilities of the priests 
included the service in the tabernacle and temple. You had to keep the place clean. They had to wash down all of the uh, the altar and keep everything clean. Blood corrodes things very rapidly and stinks and attracts flies and all of these other things. So they used a tremendous amount of water. They have to build holding tanks, and there are they've discovered these cisterns under the Temple Mount and other parts of Jerusalem that would hold water, and they've discovered aqueducts. That most of the aqueducts are from the second temple period, but they would bring water from uh, the hill country in the north and hill country uh, in the south. But you had all these priests. You had to have uh, thousands of them to carry out all of the work so that it would function efficiently on the feast days when uh, tens of thousands, if not uh, hundreds of thousands, came to Jerusalem at, at Passover and Pentecost and all the other feast days. Sixth point is the Levites were the smallest of all the tribes. According to the census in Numbers, they were not given an allotment or an inheritance or a possession of the land. They weren't given a tribal area. Uh, Their inheritance was to be uh, the Lord. And in various passages, it talks about the fact that the Lord was supposed to be their their inheritance or their possession and that God would, uh, God would provide for them. Uh, you have passages, uh, you have some cities that were to be set aside for the, uh, for the Levites, 48 towns from, the, uh, from throughout the land. This is designated in Joshua 21.4 and 13 uh, through 19. So this is all part of God's design to provide a priestly tribe. Now, there's two passages under point seven, two passages in the Old Testament that uh, directly describe the Levitical priesthood. Leviticus 21 and 22 describe uh, what could disqualify a priest, uh, what qualified a priest. Uh, Numbers 18 also describes various functions of the priesthood. And there's never a mention of a spiritual qualification. It never says they had to be a believer. That's because the ritual isn't reality. The ritual of the priesthood wasn't, a, wasn't reality. You, and I've taught this, you've heard me say this many times, that when you uh, would go into the uh, tabernacle or temple, so to speak, if you were ritually unclean, you had, you had performed some act that made you ritually unclean, that wasn't necessarily a sin, to touch a dead body is not immoral or sinful, but it is a reminder of the effects of sin, so it would make you spiritually unclean. So you have a number of things that would make a person spiritually unclean, but it didn't necessarily make them out of uh, make make them a sinful or out of fellowship. If you're living up in Dan or you're living in the Galilee or somewhere and you commit a sin, you can't run down to uh, Jerusalem and offer a burnt offering at the temple. Uh, it, otherwise, you'd never come back home. You, we just sin and sin and sin. So, so you would confess your sin. That's reality, your personal relationship with the Lord. David's out with his sheep. He prays to the Lord. He confesses his sin. But when he goes to worship at the temple, he has to be ritually cleansed. Well, the priesthood is related to that observant, that ritual idea. So there's not a spiritual qualification there, only a ritual qualification, because the ritual is just uh, uh, foreshadowing or creating a picture of the spiritual reality. 
the requirements are genealogical and, and they're physical. If, um, if a Levite had any kind of defect, if you had a deformed arm or you had blemishes on your skin, uh, various other uh, things are mentioned, then you could not serve in the temple. That doesn't mean you were just a rotten, corrupt sinner and you just couldn't serve. It all in, has to do with uh, visualizing the effects of sin and that sin keeps people away from, uh, away from God. In Numbers 18, 6 and 7, we read, God speaking, says, Behold, I myself have taken your brethren, the Levites, from among the children of Israel. They are a gift to you, given by the Lord to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting. So it's pure genealogical uh, requirement. Uh, verse 7, Therefore you and your sons with you shall attend to your priesthood for everything at the altar and behind the veil. That's the uh, high priestly family. And you shall serve, that's Aaron, I give you your priesthood to you as a gift for service. See, we have these gifts, these positions to serve the Lord. That's an essential idea in the, in, in the idea of priesthood. Uh, you shall serve, I give you this priesthood as a gift for service, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death because no one can come in the presence of God unless they're ritually clean. So if they're outside and they're not designated, then the automatic penalty is death penalty. God's serious about that. Under the eighth point, that's all Old Testament leading up to and pointing to the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And that's the next significant priesthood mentioned in the Bible when we get into the New Testament. Hebrews 2.17 and 18 and three one. Therefore, in all things, he, that is Jesus Christ, had to be made like his brethren. That's the incarnation. He had to be a man. Only a man could serve as an intercessor. First Timothy two, uh, two three. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. That mediator has to partake of both sides in order to bring about that uh, that meeting. So he has to partake. Uh, he has to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Uh, only a human being can represent us to God. If he was just God, he could not do that. Verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted. Now that doesn't mean he was enticed to sin, but tempting means that you are objectively enticing somebody to sin, not that you have responded to it. Some of you know what I mean. If you've ever been on a diet and you feel really good one day and somebody offers you chocolate cake and ice cream, you go, no, I'm not even interested. And we've all had days like that. Then the next day comes along and somebody puts that in front of us and, and we almost eat the plate it's on because we yield to it. That's that, But they're both temptations. Whether you respond positively to the temptation or not doesn't define it as a temptation. It's, it's objective. So Jesus is tested, and, he's, and because of that, he is qualified. And so therefore, he's able to aid those who are tempted. That's, uh, that's us. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews concludes, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. He is our high priest. In chapter 5, we read, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, 
But it was he, that is God the Father, who said to him, God the Son, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm, that's a quote from Psalm 110.1, a messianic prophecy. And then the next verse, he quotes another verse from Psalm 110. He quotes from Psalm 110, verse 4. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What tribe was Jesus from? He's from the tribe of Judah. The ruler of Israel had to come from the tribe of Judah. The prophecy that that um, Isaac, uh, excuse me, Jacob made to uh, his son Judah in Genesis chapter 49 was that the scepter would not depart from that tribe. The scepter is a sign of being a ruler. And so Jesus could not uh, uh, be a priest, a Levitical priest, because he's from the tribe of Judah. But he is a priest. He is a royal high priest because of his descent from Melchizedek. I mean, because he is a priest according to the type of Melchizedek. And so that helps us understand our royal high priesthood because we're in Christ. I mean, our royal priesthood. We are in Christ. He is our royal high priest. Because we are in him, we are royal priests. Our priesthood derives from his high priesthood. And then it goes on to talk about um, Christ, who in in verse 7, who in the days of his flesh... When he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, that is, because of his uh, response, his obedience to God's authority, that's Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 10. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and having been perfected, that is, he had to be matured, that's what that word means, brought to maturity, And having been brought to maturity, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. That's why I spent time uh, giving that as background. Only then can we understand the high priesthood of Jesus, and only then can we understand our derivative high priesthood, which is a royal high priesthood from, from, uh, I mean, a royal priesthood derived from Jesus. And then in Hebrews 4, uh, 14, and following, we read, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Uh, The first heavens is the atmosphere of the earth. The second heavens is the universe. The third heaven is the throne room of God. Who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That's the exhortation there. Don't give up. Don't fade out. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. You take out the double negative. He's saying we have a high priest who understands our weaknesses because he was tempted in every category, even as we are, but he did not sin. So therefore, he is able to strengthen us. And, And how does that happen? Verse 16, let us therefore... Come boldly to the throne of grace. We can do that only because we're priests, because we have a high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's opened the way. So so our priesthood is embedded. And remember, Hebrews is also a Jewish epistle, just like 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and James, 
written to Jewish background believers. So that helps to understand uh, some of the, the Jewish connection that's going on here, recognizing that that the Jewish uh, background of the priesthood is the a framework for helping us understand our our priesthood. So point number nine, as priests, we are to bring sacrifices. That's part of the role of a priest is to bring sacrifices, and we studied those uh, before, and this doesn't mean that you have a sense of loss or giving up. It is that you're offering something freely to God for his service. This is seen in 1 Peter 2.5. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. And we talked about those. Uh, Financial giving is one of those spiritual sacrifices. Offering praise to God, singing hymns to God, that's uh, a spiritual sacrifice. Living our life for him, that's another form of that spiritual sacrifice where we are serving him. Romans 12.1. Paul says, I beseech you, or I beg of you, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, that means totally set apart, unique, uh, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That is a priestly verse. That's a function of our high priesthood. That is so great that we can serve the living and true God. Romans, and we do that because... We have been made a temple. We have been made a temple. A temple is a place where deity dwells, and God the Holy Spirit has made our bodies a temple for the indwelling of Christ. Romans 8 9 says that uh, indeed, second line, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, the Spirit of God dwells in us to make us a temple. Colossians 1 27, Paul writes, um, to them, God willing, uh, God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. That's not in the church. That's in the individual believers in the church. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 1 Corinthians 6.19 both talk about the fact that the believer is the temple of God because the Spirit of God dwells in him. The Spirit of God is what sanctifies us so that Christ can dwell in that sanctified space inside of us. And all of this is directed to something in the future. Revelation uh, mentions this three times. In the opening intro, uh, John writes that he has made us kings. Actually, that's a bad translation. He has made us a kingdom, royalty. That would be almost a better. He has made us royalty. He has made us uh, a, a royalty, comma, no and. That was a textual variant comma, priest to his God. So this refers to what happens, what is transacted at the point of our salvation. We are made priest to his God and Father. Then in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 10, as you have that heavenly scene where you have the church and the angels before the throne of God, and this is the scene where 
they're searching, and one of the angels is searching everywhere, and they can't find anyone qualified to open the scroll that the Father has in his hand. So, and then the Lamb comes forward. There's this dramatic scene where the Lamb takes the scroll, and then the angels and the 24 elders uh, break out in a chorus, and the 24 elders are, are praising uh, the Lamb, because He has redeemed us, they say, referring to them as church age believers. You have redeemed us. Uh, can't be angels who say that. And then verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is He who has part in the first resurrection. That is a multiple uh, resurrection. We'll study that Sunday morning on resurrections. Over such, the second death has no power, but they, that is the believers, church age believers, will uh, be priests of God and of Christ and reign with him. That's the idea of royal priesthood. Royalty reigns, and we're called priests of God. So we reign as royal priests for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom. And that gives us this scope of what the Bible teaches about our priesthood. And we develop as priests only as we grow spiritually, developing the capacity to serve and function as royal priests when the kingdom comes. Next time we'll come back and we get into some uh, really interesting material starting in verse 11 that shifts gears and that sets the stage for everything that's covered uh, down through uh, almost the end of chapter 4 and none of it is going to make any of us comfortable. So that's the way the Scripture is. We come to study the Word not to be uh, told how great we are, but how great the Lord is and how we are to serve Him. So we'll come back next time and get into uh, that next section. Father, thank You for this opportunity to trust You, to uh, trust Your Word, to learn Your Word, to be transformed from the inside out by the uh, renovation of God the Holy Spirit, taking your word to apply to our lives. Help us to understand, to think about, to reflect upon what it means to be a priest, a royal priest to you. This is our position. This is who we are, our status in Christ. Father, challenge us with what, what we've studied today. In Christ's name, amen.